Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing okay today. Uh, really interested in the conversation that follows. Uh, I was not a part of it. We had a guest host uh, by the name of Chloe Cantor. Some of you folks might recognize her name from the amazing podcast that she does with her sister, her twin sister, Melina, and they are called the True Crime Twins. But Tim, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for asking. Um, yes, Chloe, uh, Chloe pinched hit for you in this interview, and she did a, a bang-up job, a, uh, a great job. And we spoke with Gwen Barringer. She is a web sleuth. She messaged us on TikTok. You can find her TikTok at Gwen Monster. And she has been spreading the word on two disappearance cases, one of them that she actually also has done a podcast for. It's called A Light for Erica, and that's Erica, E-R-I-C-K-A. Her name is Erica Renee Hogue. She's been missing from Selma, Oregon since May 17th, 2018. And our guest, Gwen Barringer, has dug very deep into this case. And Erica is a white female. She was born on June 7th, 1978, which would make her 44. She was 39 years old at the time of her disappearance, 5 foot 6 inches, between 100 and 130 pounds. Clothing that she was wearing and jewelry at the time of her disappearance, a green hooded zip-up vest with white trim and two pockets, and purple moccasins. And Hogue, unfortunately, suffers from schizophrenia and is classified as disabled. She may be in need of medical assistance. And we also speak about the disappearance of Melinda Marie McCullum from Seal Beach, California. She's been missing since February 12th, 1989. She's classified as an endangered missing white female. She was born on June 25th, 1963, which would make her 59 years old. She was 25 at the time of her disappearance, 5 foot 5 inches, about 110 pounds, blonde hair, brown eyes, and she has a two-inch scar on her left wrist. Her nickname is Mindy. And for both Melinda and for Erica, all of those details are courtesy of the charlieproject.org. And Tim, I'm really looking forward to listening to this conversation that you and Chloe have with Gwen. Is there any highlight that you can give me that I can uh, you know, keep the ears open for? Well, I would say the conversation veers a little bit into cultural conversation at times because Gwen is a prolific web sleuth and has worked with our friend John Lorden on Seriously Mysterious and some of his podcasts and uh, projects. And Gwen has an inclination to uh, get involved in these cases and is maybe a little bit too close, you could argue. And uh, we speak a little bit about that at the end of the episode. So any web sleuths out there listening, make sure you heed the warnings that uh, this interview brings. Very cool. Looking forward to it. Thanks. And speaking of looking forward to things, Tim, what are we looking forward to in August of this year? We are hitting the road with true crime obsessed Patrick Hines and Maggie Freeling. We are talking about the disappearance of Maura Murray documentary from Oxygen that we were in, Lance, and we get made fun of in five different cities on this tour during that show, starting on Wednesday, August 3rd, in Orlando, Florida. No better way I would rather spend the dog days of summer than getting roasted on five separate occasions. <laughs> You're right. We start in Orlando, and then we move on to Atlanta, Georgia, on Saturday, August 6th, and we take a little break. Then where are we? We hit up St. Paul, Minnesota, on Thursday, August 18th, and that is a new date. And then we head south to Dallas, Texas, on Saturday, August 20th, 
We wrap it all up on Sunday, August 21st in Houston, Texas, and you can get your tickets to your corresponding city at truecrimeobsessed.com. Click on the link, see us live, or you can just type in slash c-us-live. And we hope to see-you-there. Welcome to the podcast, Gwen Barringer. How are you today, Gwen? I'm doing pretty good. I mean, can't complain. How about yourself? I am doing great. We are being joined here by Chloe Cantor in place of uh, Lance Reinsteerna. How's it going, Chloe? Always happy to replace Lance. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> we can only hope that you replace him full time. Oh, anytime. <laughs> Well, I'm uh, I'm happy to uh, to speak with you, Gwen, and um, we want to talk a little bit about these two disappearance cases that you've covered. But I also want to talk about, I guess, the culture of of web sleuthing and your your history in doing such. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about your background. I've been sort of a web sleuthing, I guess, since um, I was in high school, more or less. You know, I'm in my 30s now. Basically, it's been a little bit of a long journey. Uh, my uh, biological mother took off when I was a kid, and so I kind of had the hunt for her for a little while going on. Uh, found her when I was in my 20s, uh, but you know, through that search, I kind of discovered things like the Doe Network and stuff just because I, I didn't know if she was alive or dead. And um, after that, I kind of realized that the... Uh, feelings that I had towards wanting to um, help other people who were dealing with those um, feelings of, you know, missing a loved one wasn't really going away, despite the fact that I had sort of solved my own personal mystery. And um, so I started kind of looking into other missing persons cases that I found through like Facebook and things like that. And eventually it all sort of culminated into me kind of uh, looking more locally into missing persons cases because the ones that I was really drawn to initially were so far away that I didn't really feel like I could do a whole lot to help them necessarily being unfamiliar with the area. Really, it just sort of came together in this really bizarre way um, and I'm kind of like a dog with a bone in that once I find a mystery to sort of attach myself to, I don't really let go until I can figure out some form of resolution. It's been a little bit of a wild ride. <laughs> okay. And, uh, so who have, who have you connected with? I know you, uh, you know, some of our, uh, friends in the industry. Definitely. I, uh, started kind of, a. <laughs> tossing uh, cases at John Lorden uh, through his Brain Scratch Searchlight series for a little while there. Uh, first one I did was uh, Caitlin Aikens um, out of Virginia, or West Virginia. I uh, wrote up this like dossier thing sort of about the entire case, uh, maybe went a little bit too hard, you know, but uh, he produced a video and after that I just sort of kept sending him random cases until eventually he 
asked if I wanted to write for his podcast, Seriously Mysterious. And uh, so that's kind of a, one of the things that I work on now. It's kind of cool. Also, uh, Jason Fitch is a very good friend of mine. Uh, we actually connected over the Annie Doe case out here in Josephine County. Uh, now Annie Lehman, her, um, her identity was uh, discovered by the DNA Doe Project. And um, yeah, for a while there, Jason and I were theorizing that potentially she could have been this um, convict that escaped from uh, the Midwest sort of uh, back near like the time that uh, Annie Doe was found. Of course, we were very much wrong about that, but it was kind of a neat like bonding experience, <laughs> honestly, and just really cool kind of connecting with like minds, so to speak. You started your own podcast as well. How's that been? Uh, yes, a, a light for Erica. Now, uh, I haven't produced a new episode in a little while. Uh, that's predominantly because uh, information sort of stalled and I don't like to rely solely on theories. Uh, I like to have more solid facts to base said theories around if I'm going to theorize. And uh, unfortunately, in her case, there still aren't a lot of facts out there. A lot of speculation, though. So, I mean, that's been a little bit of a uh, hitch, so to speak. But I'm working on getting a new episode out, uh, hopefully within the next few weeks here, uh, just uh, based around some of the things that I've learned in the interim and uh, some of the things that have been going on in that case. Great. What's the name of the podcast and who is it about? Uh, it's called A Light for Erica, and it is about the uh, disappearance of Erica Renee Hogue from Selma, Oregon on May 17th, 2018. Erica was kind of a, or is, a kind of a traveling hippie type uh, who ended up in Josephine County uh, through a working on uh, marijuana farms. Basically, that's a pretty big industry out here. Uh, Josephine County is known as a kind of portion of the Humboldt Emerald Triangle. And uh, so we've had marijuana grow operations here since before it was legalized in Oregon. And Erica kind of popped in uh, around legal the time that legalization was still kind of being figured out and all of all of the things were still sort of being worked on uh, in that regard. I mean, there's still a bunch of illegal grows around here, if I'm being perfectly honest. But uh, she was just out here working, living her life with her boyfriend. And uh, she apparently, allegedly, uh, was suffering from a schizophrenic break and just kind of wandered off into the woods in the middle of the night, never to be seen again. What was her role on the marijuana farm? Was she a trimmer? I'm fairly certain she was. You know, these uh, these types have been kind of hard to get a hold of and hard to get facts out of for obvious reasons. But I do think that she was uh, doing some trimming, maybe helping with the setup of the farm at that point, because, I mean, it was it was May at that point. That's not exactly growing, growing season. That's more the time of year that you set things up unless you have indoor things going on. And uh, so I believe that she was involved with the setting up of the farm and things like that. I don't really know how much of it that she was doing, though, around the time that she disappeared, simply because her mental health was definitely in a bit of an agitated state. 
uh, I believe that her boyfriend was doing the majority of the workload at that time, and she was just trying to uh, stabilize, to my understanding. Do you know about when was the schizophrenia diagnosis? Uh, the schizophrenia was diagnosed around her um, her mid-20s, from what her sisters told me. And uh, it kind of got a little bit, I don't want to say aggravated, but it got a little bit worse uh, when uh, she started having children because all the hormones and all of that stuff kind of like interfered in a way she kind of fell off track honestly uh she was i kind of want to say kindred spirit in that a lot of her like even when she was uh in the throes of her schizophrenia a lot of her drive was based in wanting to help people But the problem was she was so focused on wanting to help people that she was kind of neglecting her own responsibilities as a parent. And um, that sort of became a problem down the line. You know, when you're when you're going through a mental health issue and not necessarily uh, going through the trials and tribulations of figuring out the correct medication, whether you're unable to for financial reasons or whatnot, uh, that can make it hard to do what's expected of you. So was she on medication when she went missing? When she went missing, she was more uh, self-medicating uh, with uh, cannabis and other substances. I don't believe that she was taking the medication that she was required to take. I honestly like, um, you know, HIPAA and all of that, like her family doesn't exactly have a firm lock on the kinds of medications that she may have supposed to be, she was like supposed to be taking and uh, things like that. But we do know that she was uh, predominantly unmedicated or self-medicating. And you've worked with her family? Uh, With her uh, sister, Rachel, yes. What do we know about her boyfriend? Uh, Her boyfriend is kind of an interesting fella. Uh, His name is Larry Anthony Hopkins II. Uh, His nickname is Hannibal. A lot of people get really sketched out by the nickname, but honestly, it can be easily explained by the whole Anthony Hopkins thing, you know? Uh, But nevertheless, it is kind of a weird nickname for a guy who travels in the rainbow family and the hippie circuit to have, you know? Um, Not exactly love and light. There is speculation that he and Erica may have been in sort of a non-monogamous or polyamorous relationship at that point uh, during their relationship, but uh, nothing's really been confirmed as far as that. What is known is that he claimed on the day that she disappeared that he was working on the farm. He came back to check on her to their like campsite area that she was that they were staying at. Uh, She was laying down for a nap. Uh, The story actually goes a few different ways, but the predominant one is that she was laying down for a nap. He checked on her. He left. He came back. She was gone. Now, I've heard it other ways. He checked on her. She was agitated and she walked off into the woods. And uh, some sources say that he has claimed to have seen her walk off into the woods at this point. I do believe that is what was mentioned in the report, that she was agitated, he saw her walk off down the road, Uh, when he was speaking with friends, he told the other story where she was, you know, in their campsite taking a nap and then suddenly wasn't there anymore. 
so he's told a few different stories uh, regarding what happened to Erica, but I mean the predominant facts that he likes to spit are um, that uh, she was going through a mental health issue and just kind of took off in the middle of the night, which she does have a history of occasionally, you know, taking off for small periods of time, but she always, 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 always stayed in contact with family. And she always, always tried to figure out ways to go see her children. And she hasn't done either of those things for four years. Do you know what she was upset about when she left or what he claimed anyway? Yeah, what he claimed was that she was upset about not being able to speak with her children on Mother's Day because Mother's Day had been around this time. Uh, so basically, she was speaking with people who weren't there, allegedly, uh, freaking out about uh, not being able to talk to her kids. And according to statements he made to a friend, uh, one of the things that she kept saying was that she wanted to go home. And uh, where home is, is kind of debatable. She could have meant wanting to go up to Bend to be with her children. She could have meant wanting to go, you know, uh, back to Idaho to her sister's house. Uh, there's, it's really unclear as to what would have been meant by home. You know, if they conducted extensive searches in those woods, Searches, yes, extensive is really up for debate uh, because honestly, a uh, local police out here is uh, severely underfunded. Um, there were searches conducted uh, by the family, essentially. Uh, they involved some search and rescue dogs uh, by this guy who's based up in Washington, used to be based in Oregon, doesn't really have the most sterling reputation, I found out after interviewing him. So whether his dogs are reliable is another fact that's up for debate. As far as I know, Josephine County Search and Rescue did what they could, but they are a volunteer organization and Josephine County is a really underfunded county. So the extent of these searches is uh, so far unknown to me simply because while I have gotten the Oregon State Police records related to Erica's disappearance, I have been unable to obtain the ones from Josephine County Police Department, which I believe has more information on the searches that took place. Um, Erica's sister tried to fill me in as best as she could with where they had searched, but because she's unfamiliar with the area, she was unable to provide like specific locations, you know, so a lot of where the searches took place is kind of uh, very heavily wooded areas as well, which doesn't help things. Uh, when I spoke with the OSP officer on her case, as a matter of fact, he outright told me, the woods are very dense and we're just waiting for a body to turn up. Why didn't they release the files, though? Did they cite any reason? So Josephine County PD hasn't even gotten back to me about my records request. I have submitted the same records request three times over the last few years. 
I like to give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, I know they're busy. I know that this is a tiny community that doesn't have a lot in the way of police resources. So, you know, I always figure after like a little bit of time's passed, maybe they're just getting around to it, you know? And then when I don't hear anything for a few months, I'm just like, okay, let's submit a records request again because it's really hard to get them on the phone for some reason. I'm a little at my wit's end, but I'm I'm still hopeful that uh, with uh, some of my more recent uh, connections that I've um, obtained locally, that perhaps something will be able to done be done here soon with that. Do they even cash your checks? They haven't even accepted the requests. Like they need to accept the requests first in order for me to send them the money. I'm like, you guys, I am here to like, it, let me know when you need the money i will get it to you and they just silence radio silence well what is um what does erica's family think uh, happened to her unfortunately the uh majority of her family if not all of it believes that she is deceased and uh there is a working theory basically that either an accident happened or something more nefarious happened to her they don't want to point fingers right now but you know the last two people to have seen her were her boyfriend and the uh gentleman ryan bargay who lived on the property uh next door and occasionally allowed erica and hannibal to use like his uh, shower kitchen etc uh he allegedly was um you know getting ready to go to school he attended the local community college out here and uh he let erica use his uh bathing facilities basically you know and uh when he left uh she was you know leaving the house uh in a state of partial undress because she did like to walk around naked you know hippies when he came back not only was erica missing but uh a firearm was missing from his home and uh, there is some speculation that erica could have taken that firearm and potentially killed herself there is some speculation that that firearm could have been missing since before then potentially and uh that uh something happened to her regarding it um by other means you know i mean the boyfriend and the neighbor are really the only two people who were the last to see her so if something nefarious befell her there's a possibility that they were involved but again pure speculation because the police have stated that these gentlemen have been helpful now while these guys may have been helpful to the police they sure as heck are not talking to me I sent Hannibal a friend request, hoping to be able to speak with him about this. He does not seem interested. He denied my Facebook friend request within five minutes of me sending it. And um, I know that he knows who I am because Erica's sister has mentioned me to him. And all you really got to do is go to my Facebook profile and there's a big banner on it that says, where is Erica? (laughs) You know, so it's, I know that he is not stupid. He's not a stupid fella. He might be, you know, a little bit of a hippie, but that doesn't necessarily make him dumb. And so he's got to know about my efforts. It's just kind of weird that he has no interest in talking to me when this was his girlfriend. You know, this was someone that he allegedly loved. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. 
And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. And the neighbor as well? He he hasn't responded to you? No, he hasn't responded to me. Like, at this point, honestly, I'm kind of surprised he hasn't blocked me. <laughs> Simply because I've um, randomly, you know, every so often, I'll try and touch base with him through social media, comment on his public Facebook posts. Like, I have literally just dropped Erica's flyer repeatedly in the comments of his public Facebook posts, uh, in his inbox, etc. I've uh, tried uh, reaching him by phone, calling a couple of numbers that I found that could have potentially been associated with him. He is not interested. Uh, I have heard from friends of his that he is a quote-unquote very private person, but I mean, there's a difference between being private and just not wanting to talk. Has either of them been in trouble since that you can tell, since Erica went missing? So, Hannibal, he had a little bit of a run-in with the law about a year after Erica disappeared. Well, close to a year. It was in April of uh, 2019. He got picked up by the Josephine County Sheriff's Department on some uh, reckless driving, uh, reckless endangerment, and uh, possession of methamphetamine charges. And uh, he got popped for that. Then a couple of about a week or so, I want to say, after he was released. Maybe it was a couple weeks. He mysteriously found some of Erica's belongings on the property that she disappeared from. And he did the correct thing in reporting it to the authorities. You know, uh, Detective Brendan Quirk of the OSP uh, went out there and uh, they retrieved the belongings. It was a hat, a lanyard, and a, a homemade bong of Erica's. Uh, the bong was kind of like a comfort item, honestly, uh, from what her sisters said. Uh, anytime Erica got in like legal trouble in a state that you know wasn't exactly chill with her smoking weed, she uh, would always, always, always try and get this little homemade bong back. Like, it was just, it was a comfort item for her somehow, which, I mean, seems a little bit weird, but I mean, we all have our favorite smoking apparatuses if you smoke weed. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it makes sense in that in that way. But uh, the fact that this and the hat and the lanyard were just randomly found approximately like 100 yards off of the property, like uh, almost a year after she disappeared on April 20th, actually. So on 420 strikes me as being a little bit odd. And uh, shortly thereafter, Hannibal left the state of Oregon. There is still an active uh, failure to appear warrant out for him in Josephine County in relation to these uh, reckless driving charges and the methamphetamine charge, etc. cetera. Uh, but he just basically uh, took off and uh, went to Hawaii for a little while with a girlfriend. Um, and then he went up to Washington at a certain point. And now he's back in Arkansas. Uh, apparently he attended some rainbow gatherings at a certain point as well. And uh, was only vaguely talking to people about Erica. Like a few members of the rainbow family that have kind of... Uh, come to me regarding this have uh, definitely cited his behavior as being strange even for this particular group of traveling folk you know so it just it it, it gives me a weird feeling 
Okay. And can you describe the Rainbow Family a little bit? Yeah. So the Rainbow Family is kind of a network of uh, free-spirited hippie types, for lack of a better term. Uh, they hold yearly gatherings um, in an undisclosed location that's mostly only known to their network. Uh, sometimes they do like little gatherings in other places as well. Uh, basically, it's just kind of a network of love and light types, you know, who enjoy their marijuana, enjoy their hallucinogens, enjoy their freedom. And, uh, you know, I, I can't really fault them for that. And I, I, I can even understand why some of them wouldn't want to talk to me or go on record because, you know, they are remarkably private people in that respect. <laughs> but um, I deeply appreciate the ones who have reached out, who have managed to make contact and at least wanted to speak with me while they haven't wanted to necessarily go on the podcast, you know? And uh, what is next um, for your podcast and uh, your search for Erica? Uh, well, next, um, honestly, at this point, I'm, I'm considering pulling the sheriff aside and talking to him about my multiple records requests because I got a gig writing for the paper, uh, the local paper recently. I attend the city council meetings every month and sometimes the sheriff's there too. So like it has crossed my mind to just take advantage of us both being in the same place at the same time and just pulling him aside afterwards and being like, hey, honestly though, it's a matter of trying to get access to that property again and getting it looked at again by a fresh set of eyes by search and rescue again, hopefully. Unfortunately, there are a lot of uh, legal hurdles in the way of this. Uh, predominantly, I have had a heck of a time trying to reach the property owners or anyone who currently lives on that property because both Bargay and the Hopkins have left the area. Uh, there's some speculation that perhaps uh, Bargay, the neighbor, uh, may still be in the greater Southern Oregon area, uh, to my understanding. But he definitely is no longer on that property. And so it's really, you know, if this weren't weed country, <laughs> I would presumably be able to at least go up onto the property, knock on someone's door and be like, hi, hello, introduce myself. But that's not exactly an option here when you're dealing with growers and, you know, people who might have less than legal things going on. It can be hard enough to get people that aren't engaging in possibly illegal activity to cooperate or to even reach them. So that's, I'm sure, a significant hurdle for you in just trying to get in touch with not just the property owners, but also that neighbor and that boyfriend. Exactly. I mean, I understand that there's reasons why people don't want to talk, but when this is a matter of somebody's life, it's important to speak up. You know, it's, it's ethically and morally the right thing to do like i do not care about what they've got going on as far as you know cannabis operations i mean god knows when i was like you know in my early 20s i was working for some grows <laughs> so it i don't care about any of that i just care about finding erica and i really wish that these people would just get that but i guess what you're saying is these people could be more dangerous than i guess a normal house you you knock on mm -hmm. exactly you know i mean you don't just walk up to people's homes in this area 
without expecting somebody will at least be armed and potentially draw a weapon on you. <laughs> because Josephine County didn't have a sheriff's, like, didn't have sheriff's deputies for a very long while, like, roaming through here. Like, it was known for a long while as a quote-unquote lawless county. Uh, some people will still refer to it as part of the wild, wild west. It's just, it's a, it's a different culture out here in a lot of ways. Right. And uh, and so you're obviously in the physical, same area physically um, with, with, with what you already described with your job and, and seeing the sheriff at the, uh, the council meetings. Um, I would just urge you to be be careful um, as speaking as a web sleuth who who ha- has probably gotten a little too close at times. Um, and, and I can confirm Chloe's uh, been <laughs> by my side some of those times um, that, uh, you know, just be careful. That's all. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's definitely some precautions that are being taken that have, you know, consistently been put in place. You know, I mean, I grew up around here. I know that being as vocal as I'm being about certain things is uh, definitely risky, but it's a risk that I'm willing to take because I know that it's the right thing to do. Do you ever have moments of, which would be human, you know, when that fear kind of boils through, do you ever kind of get overwhelmed by that or is it mostly in control and you can stay focused? I mean, honestly, as far as Erica's case goes, um, people have been so reluctant to talk that there's honestly uh, very little in the way of fear there. Uh, now, with a with another case I've been looking into, there has been some recent developments that have sort of spooked me, not going to lie. Uh, but when you're digging into something this important, yes, it is important to keep yourself safe. It is absolutely important too. But you got to remember that there are good people out there that you can kind of connect with, make a network of. I mean, and I am fortunate enough to have sort of uh, created a very wonderful network of local people who may not, you know, have anything to do with these cases necessarily, but they still support my efforts unequivocally. And, um, you know, I've, I've had several people reach up to me, uh, or reach out to me, um, regarding some more recent developments on another case, uh, saying, Hey, I am a phone call or a text away. If you need me, I will be there just stat. And I greatly appreciate that because I am one person with two cats <laughs> who's just kind of <laughs> trying my best <laughs> Yeah, you mean two vicious dogs. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it's important to develop a network, you know, of of people because when you're putting things out to the uh to the world, you know, I think we, Lance and I have said this a million times that if it was just one of us doing doing this, we w- wouldn't have never we never would have gotten this far. Um we would have made too many mistakes and gotten, you know, done something that we wouldn't have continued. Is my is my guess. Um, just because it's hard. There are a lot of decisions you have to make a lot of, um, you, I mean, you really need your own internal code. Um, and if you're working with other people, it's good to bounce ideas off of. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors back to the program. 
Okay, so tell us about this other case that you've been working on. Oh, all right. While I was becoming more public about my efforts uh, to find Erica, um, another advocate in a different part of Oregon reached out to me. And um, they asked me, have you heard about this guy named Harvey Corona? And I was like, no, should I? Is this something to do with Erica's case? You know, like immediately interest peaked. Uh, and she sends me this pro or this uh, link to the Charlie Project website. And uh, this link was regarding the uh, disappearance of a woman named Melinda Marie McCollum from Seal Beach, California in February of 1989. I say disappearance, but really uh, the popular story is that she overdosed. Now, this is a bit of a rabbit hole, if I'm being honest, because um, Carone has a bit of a history. He had a bit of a history before Melinda, and he has had a bit of a history after Melinda. This story is interconnected to, other, to some other cases that are particularly interesting. Basically, Melinda McCollum was a drug addict in the 80s. She, you know, enjoyed her cocaine a little bit too much, uh, likely indulged in harder substances. And uh, Harvey Carone was a drug trafficker. And, you know, that's kind of a recipe for disaster. Uh, she met him. They were uh, dating. She disappeared. Before her disappearance, however, she and Harvey were living in an apartment next door to this gentleman named Dennis K. Woods Sr. Now, Dennis K. Woods went missing in early 1988, and um, Harvey Carone was seen clearing out his apartment. He was driving Dennis's car around, and he told Dennis's family, he told his neighbors, oh, Dennis just went on vacation. He just went on vacation. He'll be back. He asked me to keep his things safe. Uh, also, he sold me his car earlier this year, but when he was unable to produce the pink slip, uh, Dennis's family at least began taking legal action uh, to get him charged with stealing the car, while they couldn't necessarily charge him with anything to do with Dennis's disappearance, because Dennis was just a missing person at this point, you know, I mean they didn't really have the necessary evidence. So after Dennis, this is where it gets a little convoluted because sometime between Dennis's disappearance and Mindy's disappearance, uh, Melinda was known as uh, Mindy or Jamie, depending on who you ask. I believe Mindy was kind of her high school nickname. Jamie was kind of her uh, drug circle nickname. Between these two disappearances, a woman named Estella Vaughn traveled up to Roseburg to meet Harvey because after all of the Dennis things happened, uh, I'm fairly certain that he just kind of wanted to get out of Dodge for a hot second, you know? And uh, he went up to Douglas County up here in Oregon and he uh, was staying with a friend and this woman Estella Vaughn came up there and uh, they went to Washington together. She was either bringing drugs or drug money to him. And, uh, well, Harvey eventually made it back to the Long Beach, Orange County area, 
Estella did not. And Estella was reported as being a missing person in late 1988. Now, what's interesting about this is that in about uh, November of 1988, Estella visited Harvey in October. In about November, Mindy, Melinda, came up to Roseburg to visit with Harvey, and she stayed in a hotel up here. And then after, you know, she went back down to Seal Beach, Harvey went back down to Long Beach, early 1989, Melinda vanishes. And Harvey claims that he and Melinda went to a friend's house in Long Beach. He got hungry. The friends got hungry. Melinda was not hungry. He and the friends decided to go out to dinner. They came back. Melinda's on the floor, overdosed, crack pipe next to her. And because of his previous history with drug convictions, uh, because he was uh, a felon at that point, uh, having to do with, with a uh, marijuana trafficking ring out of Mexico, he rolled her up in a rug, tossed her in a dumpster, just got rid of his girlfriend like she was garbage, basically. And uh, he alleged that he was going to tell her parents about this. Uh, he expected that um you know eventually someone would find her body in a dumpster and uh report it and that you know it would just be ruled a, a sketchy overdose of a drug addict um but her body was never found and so her parents reported her missing the seal beach police got the story out and uh they ended up uh going to the refuse plant where, uh, you know, the contents of this alleged dumpster would have been put. And the police went to go check out the refuse plant. And the guys were like, yeah, so the contents of that dumpster would have been cremated. And basically, the Seal Beach police was just like, well, all right, call us if you find anything. Wow. So, okay, so this is alleged that this that this happened or this is confirmed? The dumpster story is alleged because the uh, police were not able to find her body to confirm the statement. But then it gets even weirder, guys. In the early 90s, Estella Vaughn's body is found off of a rural road up here in Douglas County, Oregon. And Carone was subsequently, after an investigation that took a couple of years, Carone was convicted of her murder. Now, while he was sentenced to life, he got out after about 20 years. He got out and is just out there living his best life. And we still don't know what happened to Mindy and we still don't know what happened to Dennis. With what Heron has said about what happened to Melinda, were any charges brought forth to him regarding what he did afterward? You know, surprisingly, not. I think that there's a possibility that Seal Beach PD was trying to go a little bit harder. They didn't just want to, you know, arrest him on speculation that he had disposed of her body in this dumpster. I think that they were waiting for more evidence to come. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like they really bothered looking for the evidence, at least not from the information that I have. You know, they performed their interviews, they did what they could, but the missing persons report on Melinda is like this big. 
it, it, it's very tiny. Now, the homicide report on the Estelle Vaughn investigation, well, I have a rather large binder just full of information that is mostly police reports. <laughs> and like, it's, it's a little bit crazy, honestly, because the amount of information in here is insane. However, the fact that the Douglas County PD didn't necessarily, because it was a closed investigation, they didn't redact a whole lot. You know, they redacted the necessary information, but they left enough unredacted for me to fill in a few of the blanks in the Seal Beach report, which I, I greatly appreciated because Seal Beach heavily, heavily, heavily redacted that files or that file due to it still being, you know, kind of a, I won't say open investigation because they've kind of put the case on the back burner for the last, you know, 30 something years. You know, I mean, I, I, I have all of this information that I am just sitting on. There's a couple theories. Uh, obviously, Melinda being in the general area where Dennis's disappearance and Estella's murder occurred doesn't lend itself to the overdose theory so much, at least not in my mind. Would you mind sharing some of the theories that you've developed? Yeah, so um, I do think that uh, Melinda was likely murdered. And her mother, Janice uh, Siebert, seems to think this too. Her mother is still alive, at least as of last year she was. I haven't spoken with her this year. Uh, but her mother never really gave up the search at least not technically like she still has a bunch of information she did her fair share of digging when uh, the Estella Vaughn situation was going on you know and uh, bless her she has remained just adamant and wanting to know what happened to her daughter uh, now when she and I spoke we were kind of discussing the possibility that uh, Melinda may have been planning to uh, speak with police regarding the Dennis Woods situation. Uh, there is a possibility since he was her neighbor and uh, since Harvey was the last person seen clearing out her apartment or his apartment and so on and so forth, uh, that Melinda knew more than she was necessarily letting on. Now, the fact that she was kind of a unstable uh, drug addict uh, from what I have heard. She also had a bit of a temper. And I think that, you know, if, if Harvey pissed her off, she could have run her mouth at the wrong moment. And he could have done something. Now, this is pure speculation because obviously I have no proof of this, but the, the facts just sort of seem to lend themselves to this theory a little too well more so than him just tossing her in a dumpster like trash like you know because she od'd like i'm i'm not saying her overdose isn't possible i'm just saying with the rest of the facts surrounding her disappearance it doesn't seem like the most likely theory and uh, and so what are you doing in this case what do you uh what are you up to in this one basically just getting the story out there honestly because i mean here's the thing Harvey lives in my town. That is kind of the kicker. And so while it isn't incredibly unsafe 
for me to come forward with this information. I am, you know, I'm a fairly recognizable person around these parts. I hate to admit it, but I mean, the blue hair, the septum ring, this is, this is a conservative little town here we got going on. <laughs> and um, it just feels right in a way that I can explain to be coming forward about this. Uh, because I feel like not coming forward about things, not being vocal enough about things may have contributed to Melinda's undoing. You know, I, I do think there's a possibility that she was going to flip on him, but she also wanted her drug fix. And what quicker way to get that than the boyfriend who is known for handling drugs? You know, I, I grew up here. I've been in this area for a little bit longer than Harvey has. I've got some connections of my own. And so while I am concerned, I'm not going to let fear stop me. So this happened back in 1989. Harvey's considered a suspect. He's considered a suspect in another crime. He's out there working at an apartment complex. Do you think that the police are actively trying to put closure to this? Or are you the only one out there trying to do something? So here's the thing. Harvey was actually arrested last year in connection to some large-scale illegal marijuana operations. Wow. Well, uh, you've dug in pretty deep on these cases. I, uh, I think it's pretty amazing. And um, please keep in touch and uh, let us know where your journey takes you. And um, we're happy to talk to you more about, uh, about these cases um, you know, as updates come in. Yeah, absolutely. I would greatly appreciate that because like, honestly, with, uh, with how little information is kind of available, uh, I mean, about either of these cases in a way, I mean, there's a lot of information about Harvey and Melinda and Dennis and everything. Don't, don't get me wrong, but like with how little current information that there is, I, I can use all the support I can get. And where can uh, listeners follow your work? Uh, so there's a couple different avenues. Of course, you can listen to A Light for Erica on most of your major listening platforms. For more information about Erica's case, um, I also have a Facebook page also called A Light for Erica. And uh, I've been recently getting a lot of exposure through TikTok. And uh, it started out as my personal TikTok account and just sort of has turned into a another avenue for my advocacy, so to speak. Uh, and uh, my uh, username on TikTok is Gwen Monster. So G-W-E-N Monster. And uh, I've been kind of blowing up TikTok in that particular way, you know? I mean, the hashtag Alight for Erica has almost 500,000 views at this point. Uh, the hashtag Melinda McCollum has over 100,000. 